Welcome to Here We Grow, a grassroots podcast by Southwest Georgia Farm Credit focused on education and inspiring growth down on the farm, at home, and in rural communities. Whether you're a farmer or farm her, advocate, land lover, or southern dweller, we have industry experts and homegrown leaders ready to share their insights with you. Thanks for listening. Here we grow with episode 13. I'm your host, Billy Billings, a relationship manager with Southwest Georgia Farm Credit. Today's episode is focused on equipping women with the resources to tackle their landowner and forest management needs through programs, membership, and online resources. Today, I got Danielle Atkins on the line. Thanks for joining us, Danielle. Great to be here. All right, a little bit about Danielle. She is the owner of Land and Ladies whose purpose is to educate and empower women landowners with the confidence to manage their own land. Danielle designs and leads all Land and Ladies events, writes original articles which explains various forest management aspects, and uh, is relatable to everyday life. She also offers forestry management plans to develop services through Land and Ladies. So, welcome again. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been listening to y'all for a little bit, and I'm honored to be a part of y'all's podcast. Awesome. Well, I'm a rookie podcast host, but it's been fun uh, doing the episodes we've rolled out so far, and we're happy to have you today. Um, I'm going to give you the floor, just let you kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself. All right. So you've already done a really great intro, but I'll just give a little bit more background about me. I went to the University of Georgia, the Warnell School of Forestry, and honestly, I went to UGA to be a pharmacist, and that was a terrible idea. But I got my bachelor's in wildlife sciences, and while I was through there, I learned so much more about forestry that I decided to make a career out of forestry, and I got my master's of forest resources by the end of 2013, after which I worked with the Georgia Forestry Commission for about four and a half years. And it was during this time that I really started to learn a little bit more about the challenges of women forest landowners. And it wasn't a slap in the face. It was a very slow exposure that they all, all had the same questions. They all had the same uncertainties, and they all tend to come to management roles in very similar situations, which was through inheritance. So I worked with the Georgia Forestry Commission for four and a half years. I became a registered forester in the state of Georgia, and when I started having my own kids is when I branched off and decided to do my own business, self-employment type of venture and make Land and Ladies, its own thing, with help, of course, uh, with uh, the Warnell School of Forestry in partnership with the grant. They wanted me to host someone's workshops because of my experience when I was working with the state, starting to dabble in women programming. And it was kind of at that moment in time that I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this now. And Land and Ladies was then officially born in May of 2020, which is, you know, the perfect time to start a business. <laughs> <laughs> Forestry has always been something that interests me. My family and I, we have some small tracts of land, and there are challenges that, that come with day-in, day-in uh, management of that land. So just kind of tell us about the original, I guess, struggles that, you, that you've that you seen in land ownership for females in general, and uh, some more what do your customers tell you about and what you all work through. So every time I would come across, especially in my beginning years of a woman that would call in and say, hey, I need advice, I need a management plan, I need to know what to do with my timber, it was almost always after an inheritance through a spouse or a father figure. Now, this isn't always the case, but generally this is what I saw. 
And it would even happen in families that I know are big timberland names, big land ownership names. You would come across and find out they haven't been engaged with the management of their lands as much as I would have considered. They didn't understand the jargon. They didn't know what questions to ask. They didn't know what past management was done, and they didn't know what they needed to do to handle this asset now that they were in charge. And a lot of it is because we always have, you know, our spouses, our fathers, and we never want to think about them not being there. And so when it comes to, hey, do you want to come help us on the lane? Like, you know what? No, daddy's got it. You know, Mark's got it. Joe's got it. He's been handling it for a while now. He understands it's just easier. But then something happens. In a sense, statistically, women tend to outlive their spouses. They tend to outlive men. It is kind of inevitable that the women are going to end up in some type of management role. And that is when they they become really, really overwhelmed, and they don't know which questions to ask, and it just becomes this downward spiral. And then they're also at risk of being taken advantage of, which doesn't happen, but there's always the, or doesn't always happen, but there's always those black eyes, you know, those bad apples, the 1% that we have to be wary of. Um, And so that's really where a lot of these challenges come from. It's just from that unknown, from not being engaged with the management of the past to not really knowing how to answer those basic questions, not truly understanding the jargon, and then feeling very overwhelmed with this wave, this almost tidal wave of information of this is what you got to do, this is what you did, this is how it's supposed to be, and then trying to uphold the legacy that your father's handed on to you, that your spouse was doing, that you're trying to hold on for your kids, and it just becomes a very overwhelming and almost a analysis paralysis type feelings. And so it's, it's nothing new that I would say almost any new landowner would come across, these same uh, almost challenges, but it tends to be a little bit more amplified for women um, during these moments just because they tend to not be engaged with any of the the industry until that point in time that they are now in charge. Right. I understand. I'm following you there. So what is the process, say, if someone has just uh, come across some land, be it inheritance or purchase, and they necessarily don't know what to do with the property, what's the process or what's the steps that they'll take with meeting with you and Landon ladies that will um, they'll get them on the right track? So we're an online forestry consulting business, and all of what I do is really develop programs to help them through the process to communicate more effectively to find the right resources for them to get work on the ground. So first things first, it, it kind of depends on what stage they're at, where they're located, and time of year. And so, for example, the very first program I have that I've launched, our most popular program, is our Women Landowner Academy. And it's a six-week-long land ownership fundamental program where we walk through together week by week and go through the six fundamental things that every landowner should know. How to answer the basic questions. What do you own? Where do do you own it? Why do you own it? Um, And that's kind of just the foundations of working with a forester, with your extension agent, whoever it may be. And then we progress from there to understanding your land budget, the financial responsibilities and opportunities when it comes to your land, reforestation jargon, harvesting your timber jargon, and then estate planning. So we go through all of this together, and that's really the best starting point. But there are a ton of other ways, at least women working through um, land and ladies. 
We have a variety of articles. If they prefer to do their own digging, they're not really ready to commit to joining a community, a group, especially an online group that you can kind of filter through to get a lot of different forced topics explained to you. Of course, I have my social media, which provides just a lot of different forest management and land ownership information in a more humorous and ridiculous way, which I absolutely love. And we are working on building out our library of instant access courses. For instance, we have a Selling Your Timber A to Z course. And you may be like, well, why would I do these types of courses? Extension provides all of these resources, you know, for free. I have all of this information out there. And what we're doing is providing you a lot of that meat because Extension has a ton of resources. It's in PDFs. And maybe that's not how your learning style is. Or perhaps you don't understand the jargon of what's written out there. And so to save you time of Googling hours and hours and hours, trying to decipher it yourself. We are developing these these networks, these um, courses, these programs for you that explain everything in a very simplistic, but not talking down to you. I don't want anyone to think that, um, you know, I'm oversimplifying things. We just make the information a lot more accessible, accessible, understandable than if you were just to Google for hours. Um, And then, of course, we periodically we'll have some in-person events. So we just held our Women Landowner Symposium last week. We only do this every two years. And it's a way for us to bring all of our online online programming, online attendees, members, that online community that we're working on building throughout the Southeast in person together so we can have that in-person fellowship. We just had that. We won't have the next one until 2025. But occasionally you also see us contracted with different organizations that you might see some one-day events. For example, on March 22nd in Bainbridge, we will have a one-day workshop with um, the Warnell School of Forestry and Farm Service Agency focused on the CRP program. And so you'll see that on March 22nd and September 14th. But otherwise, everything else you'll see from us will primarily be online. And that's where we're just working on building women's confidence, building their communication skills so they can confidently reach out to Extension or their forestry associations, forestry, county, management foresters, whoever it may be, and get the right plans developed for them and be guided in the right direction. Right. Um, yeah, I have a, like I said, I have, being a small landowner myself, you know, you can go out there and read all these things on the NRCS website, USDA website, and it's still not simplified. And even for someone that considers themselves somewhat smart, I, I still get confused. And there's there's application dates, there's rubrics to follow, and it, get, it gets um, rather involved. So having someone or an organization like yours that will step in and, and help somebody through that is, is huge. So, um so you, you get a timber management plan, and in that plan, obviously, you, at some point, you've got to cut and harvest the timber. How, how does someone like yourself, a forester, what, what, are, what are kind of like the, the cutting rotations and, and just some details of a, a basic timber management plan? So that's a great question, and that is where a lot of people get the most anxious, I would say, especially women. They get very, very anxious when it comes to selling your timber, and I've noticed people do one of two things. They either make a decision like very, very quickly, very impulsively, like, oh, it's ready to cut timber. It's been 30 years. Granddaddy's always cut our timber every 30 years, and we're just going to go cut it and sell it to um, Bobby Joe down the road. 
with no research, no thinking, that's just how it's always been done. This is how they're going to do it. And then you have people on the other side of the spectrum that know we have to sell timber, but you're very emotional to it. Um, you get very kind of uh, on the fence, flip-floppy. They might call Forrester, and then they won't do anything else after that point. Um, they get kind of stuck that they're so worried of being taken advantage of, that they're not getting the best price, that they're going to do something wrong, and then they never sell their timber. So where's that that sweet spot? I definitely say don't be impulsive. Don't just sell it to Bobby Joe down the road. Do a little bit of research, but don't get so stuck in that research. So what do I share about cutting your timber, selling your timber? First off, you know, respecting and understanding it is an emotional decision, and that's where I think a lot of different types of foresters don't necessarily take the time to help process that point that you are going to have a very drastic change in your landscape. So you do have to emotionally be ready for it. Your land might be ready. Your plan might say it's ready, but you also have to be emotionally ready for that. Because if you're not, it doesn't matter how great of a price you got, how good your forester was, how many best management practices they did out there. If they made it look like a park, you're still going to think it looks like a Jurassic tornado and they destroyed your property. So that's the first thing I try to prepare folks for when cutting your timber is understand it's a management tool and it's okay to cut trees despite what a lot of different society says. You know, the Lorax has gotten us conditioned that if someone, what, what's the phrase, if someone uh, like you doesn't care a whole lot, nothing will change, no, it will not. And of course, he's standing on a stump. What I always say the Lorax forgets is that we're replanting our trees afterwards. And so if you care, you really should have some type of harvesting. Maybe clear cutting isn't for you, and that's okay, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't ever cut your trees. Now, if you are looking to implement some type of regular routine of selling your timber, there's still a lot of different variables. It comes down to first things first is what are your objectives? What is your purpose for your land? And that might dictate what type of rotation you might have. Second thing you need to consider are what are your local markets? Markets change drastically depending on where you're at. I know y'all are in southwest Georgia, and y'all's markets are very different from where I'm at here in Brunswick, Georgia, where we have a very intensive, very good pulp market. So it makes sense for me wanting uh, intense timber revenue income. I will probably have a shorter rotation age where I could do maybe just pulpwood markets and possibly pine straw on a 18-year rotation, and my my return on investments would be very high. Versus for y'all, especially after Hurricane Michael, the markets are still trying to get in the stabilization. You're like, you may not have those same type of turnaround time frames. So those are the two things you really have to play out. But it does come down to what do you want from your land? What are your, What is your why? What is your purpose? And then finding that consulting forester that can help guide you because they understand what you're trying to create. What is that legacy? Um, what are all of those different faucets that you're trying to balance on your property income, wildlife habitat, recreation? You know, obviously the soil and water conservation is always up there and that's why we have best management practices. And that consultant that you pick and now you trust will help guide you on what are your local markets availability. And this might be the right uh, rotation age that you should go for, whether it's 25 years, whether it's 30 years, whether it's 35 years. And those would also change based on if you have upland hardwoods, traditional pine plantations, or bottomland hardwoods. So how do you balance all of that? But also 
recognizing that cutting timber is so critical for a very healthy forest ecosystem. Yep. Golly, I tell you, you know know what you're talking about. Um, Just to to circle back on a few terms, we've had another forester on here at one point, but um, just to circle back for our listeners, let them know just kind of some terms we're throwing around. Just let them know what pulp wood is and kind of what age tree gets cut into that um, wood product, I guess you would say. Okay, absolutely. So you traditionally will have three different product classes that most foresters talk about, pulp wood, chip and salt, salt timber. And you have specialty is poles being the, the premium of the crop. Pulp wood is your lowest quality product. So when you do those first thinnings between the ages of 12 to 15, most of that's going to be pulp wood. It's your small timber that's probably at least 30, 40 feet tall. Uh, it does have to be a certain size, you know, in diameter. And that's going to vary depending on the mill, of course. I won't say what those sizes are, but they have to be a certain size, a certain height, but it's around that age of 12 to 15. Your chip and saw is that next step up. It's kind of in between your saw timber and your pulp wood, so it doesn't have any major defects that your pulp woods also might have. It doesn't have any forks, so when your trees split up, it doesn't have any cakers, which looks like kind of a cut in the middle of a tree. It's not going to have any curves or swerves or sways or anything like that that you wouldn't be able to cut a straight board of. If you go to Home Depot, you see those straight boards. Chip and saw and saw timber products have to be able to cut those straight boards out of it. Now, they have amazing computer technology, so they can take some slightly curvy, slightly not perfect timber and still cut boards out of it uh, phenomenally. But your pulp woods are just all of those lower quality products, and you're going to get the lowest price for these products, which is why you don't traditionally grow just for pulp wood. Pulp wood is just like, we're still getting something out of it. It goes to your diapers. It goes to your tissue papers. We absolutely need it, but you don't necessarily want to grow for it only unless you happen to be right next to a pulp mill or in a very high-demand pulp market. Okay, and you said you all have a – a great pulp market up there in Brunswick, correct? We do. <laughs> what what brings that about? Is that because of just, I mean, access to the rail system, just the mills up there or more interested in that type of end product or what? We just have a lot more pulp mills where we're located. So we got, you got two ports next to us, and then we also have the Bioenergy Waycross Mill, um, which basically takes pulp markets, pulp, pulp products at the same time. And so when you have a ton of different mills and markets near you, it naturally increases the price of things, supply and demand. You have more demand, you're going to have more increase in prices compared to other locations that maybe you only have one pulp mill. That one pulp mill kind of gets to dictate what they're willing to pay based on weather, based on their own supply versus when you have multiple mills. We have GP, we have DS Smith. Then again, um, like I said, we have a Neva that's in Waycross. And, of course, we have the ports. So we have different saw timber uh, mills. And then, of course, we have about at least three different pulp mills. And so we just have a much higher uh, demand within a 60 to 100-mile radius, which is about your average radius that most mills are looking to supply their timber. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, another scenario for us, say we have a a customer that's either clear cut their land or they've purchased some new raw land with no trees on it. And they've come to land and ladies and they're looking to implement the new timber plan that you've come up for them. Are there, uh, I guess, grant programs or partnerships out there to help with financing of replanting of trees? And 
or how, what have you seen in the past? I know I have financed some timber tracks, not necessarily the replanting of them yet, but my lending career is rather short. So what are programs out there that customers can go to to get assistance with um, reforcing their property? Absolutely. So if they just clear cut, I would say first things first is to put a percentage of that aside to plan for reforestation. I love posture programs. I definitely recommend throwing your hat in the ring, but you shouldn't rely on cost share programs because they are incredibly competitive. And I've seen landowners postpone any type of management for almost five years or more. Now, if you're just waiting one year, that's not a big deal in the scheme of your 30 plus year management of your forest lands. But when you start looking at that three, four, five years, one, you're making it way more expensive to do any type of site prep and reforestation you need to do. And two, you've now wasted uh, almost like a, not a quarter, but a fifth of your timber's time frame to even get started. You've wasted five years before you even get started. But what programs are there? That was your question. First off, the most popular is EQIP, E-Q-I-P. Environmental Quality Incentives Programs. These are run through the NRCS. These are the most popular. I love a good EQIP. They're one to two years in time frames. They help you with your immediate needs. So they essentially help reimburse you about 60 to 80%, depending on what type of landowner you're at, what you're applying for, the funding pools, and those types of scenarios, and also prices. They, they reimburse you to get different practices done. Most people apply for reforestation, but you can apply for almost anything within forest management underneath the EQIP. I think they have between two and 300 different practices. And a lot of farmers are probably already very familiar with EQIP because they do have a lot of other agricultural type of practices and branches that they help reimburse and pay for. So it's usually the first one I say to throw your hat in the ring. Um, if you just purchased the land and it's the clear cut and you didn't get that timber income to put aside, I would definitely throw your hat in the ring for equip. Give it a try. Okay. Because reforestation can be very expensive. Oh yes, most definitely. I learned that the hard way this past year. And and one thing you said I want to circle back on too is you know you had that one customer hypothetically that that waited five years to get into one of these programs to get some funding and then here you are you got a twenty year timberman management plan and they they essentially stalled for five years and so there is the other end of that or other side of that sword and that is trying to replant or get trees back in the ground too soon and i think that's where i fell this past 24 months we uh family acquired a small track and after the cut we wanted to get trees in there asap and i think most Mm -hmm. foresters would advise waiting a year letting the Mm -hmm. undergrowth come back up and spraying pretty heavily. Luckily, some of our land was row crop, so we didn't have, um, I guess, a lot of the offshoots or hardwoods or just trash trash woods growing up underneath of it. Um, but there are certain portions that we, we planted probably a little too soon. So what would you advise on somebody? I mean, obviously, don't take five years, but maybe not go in there a couple months after a harvest. Is that right? It depends on when it was harvested. If you finish it harvesting, say, January, February, uh, I would definitely say, and you have the funds and you're ready, uh, depending on what it looked like, you can go ahead and start getting that site prep prepared if everything lines up. Most foresters, and especially industry lands, do wait approximately a year. Just kind of let the land settle. It's had a lot of heavy equipment on it. Let some revegetation come back up and then plan on site prepping and planning for the next following year. 
But if you're ready to go and it's early enough, yeah, you can go ahead and do that. Now, May is about my cutoff point. Now, some other foresters, especially with the commission, their cutoff is about six months, six months from December. So they look at June. I, I prefer May. Um, and this is because of something called Paley's weevils. So if you plant within six months of your harvest, you increase the risk of getting Paley's weevils into your seedlings and destroying your seedlings that you just paid so much money for. And essentially, these are just like little bugs that get attracted to stumps and they go into the stumps. And then, although I don't think it happens a lot, there is that risk um, that they can go through. And um, I'm not, I'm not an, an uh, entomologist. I think that's the right word. Um, so I can't describe what the bugs look like, but I do know they just go to the freshly cut stumps. They're attracted to it. They kind of eat the insides, the cambium. They can crawl through the roots and go to your seedlings and pretty much girdle them. So there is that risk. It doesn't happen a lot, but there is that potential completely ignoring everything else that you're up against the clock of can you herbicide? Can you get on contractor's timeframes? And is, is there seedlings even available for you? So if you finish harvesting after May, I say just wait. Let's get started next winter. Don't try to rush it through this winter because what you do for site prep and what you do for your planting is going to set the foundation of what you're going to receive for the next 30 years. So if you rush it too much and you don't get good survival, if you don't do the ideal site prep, you may not get the results that you have intended. And you're going to be forking a lot of money, you know, 250 on the cheap side of site prep and reforestation, up to $400 an acre, especially if you're going for that long leaf. So it's better to take a year, take your time, do it right, than to try to rush it in four months. Well, that's, that's great advice right there because um, I, I wish I would have heard that six months ago. So... All right, so now we're going to move on. I know you mentioned some of your seminars and webinars, and you have a workshop coming up here in Bainbridge here shortly, correct? Yes, sir, I sure do. March 22nd. March 22nd. All right, if you are listening today, um, please reach out. You can you can call us at Farm Credit. We'll give you details on that um, new workshop, or we can um, contact you, Miss Danielle, and she will get you signed up. So tell them a, a little bit about what this workshop will cover, what all – I guess, topics that you'll be uh, discussing in Bainbridge. So it'll be a CRP, Conservation Reserve Program-focused event. It will be in-person, or you can tune in virtually. All of my events, if they're in-person, always have a virtual hybrid component to it. So if you can't travel or if you feel like, you know what, I can't do it this day, but I'd love to watch the recordings, we do have that available for you as well. But you just have to make sure you register to get those recordings. And we're pretty much going to go through what is CRP. And the basics, of course, is it's replanting cropland into trees and it's cost share through the Farm Service Agency to pay for that reforest afforestation process. So we're going to go through that. We're going to bring in the local FSA agent so she can describe how does this CRP process work. I'll be talking about what can you expect after you have trees in the ground. What are your obligations and management expectations and responsibilities? Uh, the Warnell School of Forestry will be there, and they are actually offering a $25 gift card to the first 40 participants that show up in person because they need to survey y'all. Almost all of my in-person events are in combination with the Warnell School of Forestry so they can do some type of research, which of course helps us better understand our landowners, their motivations, what are the missing links so we can continue to create better programs 
or look for better resources to improve our forest management. So they'll be doing there, doing a, a, a small survey in person. So those that are in person, you will receive a amazing gift card thanks to UGA. You just have to fill up a quick little survey for us. And we'll be having a field tour as well, hopefully being able to see CRP in person. If it's rainy, I will try to make it fun. And we'll have some type of indoor activity, letting you see different videos, interactive interactions, letting you hear from local landowners as well that have participated, or maybe the challenges of what the CRP program has provided for them. So that way people are also going into this with eyes wide open. You don't go in kind of half knowing and then commit to this long-term commitment because CRP is a 10 or 15 year sign up as well. We want to make sure you fully understand the opportunity, but what you're signing up for. Right, because it's a process that, I mean, you're sitting in the ground and waiting 20, 25, 30 years. So you want to get it right your first your first year or two. I mean, don't slouch on any quality across the board, and you want to put a good product in the ground. So so if you're a new landowner out there and you don't know what to do, give Miss Danielle a call, and she will help you out. And if you're in the Bainbridge area or you have access to social media, make sure to tune in to the Bainbridge Workshop here in his, uh, March 22nd, you said? March 22nd, yes. March 22nd. All righty. Well, that concludes our podcast today with Danielle. I thank you again for joining us. For more information, visit our website at swgafarmcredit.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app to get notified of our new episodes. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram for great industry resources. Danielle, thanks again for joining us today, and best of luck. Thank you so much for having me.